You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. Later, I'll be joined by Derek Scally in Finland, where voters go to the polls in a general election this weekend. But first, to the United States. On Sunday, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton surprised nobody when she announced her intention to seek the Democratic Party nomination to run in next year's presidential election. Let's hear a clip. So I'm hitting the road to earn your vote because it's your time. And I hope you'll join me on this journey. So why has Hillary Clinton chosen this moment to make that announcement? And is there anything or anybody who can prevent her from making it to the White House? I'm joined now on the line by Niall O'Dowd, the founder of IrishCentral.com and a longtime associate of Hillary Clinton, and in studio here by Patrick Smith, the Irish Times uh, foreign policy editor. Um, Niall, you know uh, Hillary Clinton's thinking as well as anybody. Um, We all knew she was going to make this announcement. I suppose the only question was the timing. What do you think um, prompted her to make the announcement at this time, so far out from the actual election itself? Well, I think she did originally intend to hold off until the summer. But I think the fact that there was so much interest in the early declarations on the Republican side and that they were very much setting the agenda and Senator Cruz and Senator Rubio and uh, other candidates, uh, the uh, senator from Rand Paul from Kentucky had announced. So she was aware of the news cycle and the fact that as part of the announcement ceremonies on the Republican side, they were all attacking her and yet she was being strangely silent. So I think they moved it up a a few months, which made sense, given the fact that she's pretty much dominated the news cycle for the last 72 hours. And um, notwithstanding that fact that I suppose she moved a little earlier than than anticipated, she immediately, to use her own expression, hit the road and and started her campaign immediately. It seems to be a a very different kind of campaign that she's planning this time than the one she ran in in 2008. What kind of lessons do you think she's learned from 2008? I think the main lesson she learned is uh, hire the right staff. I think the staff she had in 2008 was fighting the last election, not the 2008 election. I think what she's done this time is very clever. She's gone into the Obama camp. She's found the people who actually defeated her, and she's found out how they defeated her, and she's hired them, basically. And uh, they're basically running her campaign. And, And I think it's an interesting juxtaposition because in 2008, I often thought she was a bit like Margaret Thatcher, trying to be a woman, you know, proving that in a man's world a woman could be strong and tough and upstanding. This time she's done away with all that sort of macho posturing. She's much more about being the grandmother, the soft focus. And it's aimed at one thing. It's aimed at the, the women's vote, which I think is the critical fact for her, that she's leading among women right now, according to the Washington Post poll of April 2nd, by about 20 points, which is a huge margin at this stage. And that's what she's going to have to keep an eye on constantly. And that's why you're seeing the stuff about the grandmother and the, the family woman and all that much more than you were in 2008. And to what degree do you think she will continue to play the, the woman candidate card? Because it's a, double-edged, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? You know she would be the first woman president, but obviously she wants to <coughs> stand on her credentials as, as a president. Um, yeah, well, the, the, the lesson of the Obama presidency, the, 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 the run for the presidency, was the incredible enthusiasm driven by African-Americans and Hispanic and minority voters generally who saw on him the embodiment of what they always wanted to see, which is a black president. And they were really the fuel that kept the campaign going. He won an astonishing 
93% of, of the black vote and about 78% of the Hispanic vote. And they were the, the crucial factors in states like Colorado and key states that are swing states. So she's going to do the same with women. I think that's the, the broad strategy in that if she's leading by 20 points of women, even if that halves by the time of the election, there's no question but that she will hang on and win the White House. And I think that's, that's how you see the strategy unfold. And I, I actually think she's looking far beyond Iowa and New Hampshire. I think she's looking at the, the great Midwestern states, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, uh, you know, the, the kind of Illinois, the kind of states where the presidency is won and lost every time. And I think that's where she'll be appealing to the kind of uh, middle-class woman who's got a few kids, who's got a lot of responsibility, who's looking for a fair deal. And I think that's, that's where she will prove that she is their candidate. Right. And in terms of uh, policy, I don't know if you saw the cover of this week's Economist magazine. Certainly the edition printed in Ireland and Britain, the cover um, posed a question, what does Hillary Clinton stand for? And it's true, isn't it, that despite her very long track record in politics, it's kind of quite hard to pin down what exactly she does stand for. Is that fair? And, and what, what do you think her main policy I, I, I policies think, will be? You know, I, I don't think it's fair because if you take Hillary out of the equation and look at the Democratic Party candidate, whoever it will be, as against the Republican Party candidate, there is a profound difference in how those two parties see the world, uh, much more so than there would be, say, between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, uh, or the Labour or the Tories in Britain. I mean, this is about a different stance on immigration, on minorities, on hiring, on fair pay for equal work, on, uh, you know, whether or not you should tax the rich or, or allow them to get more tax breaks. Uh, foreign policy is a very different foreign policy, a much more activist, saber-rattling policy on the Republican side. So there are profound differences between the two parties, and Hillary would embody and be very centrist in terms of the democratic agenda. But I think the notion that she doesn't stand for anything is, is really mistaken. To me, it's very obvious that there will be a profound difference if there's a Republican in the White House than if there were a Democrat in 2016. Yeah, and I, well, I guess that addresses the question of, of um, if and when she secures the, the nomination, there would clearly be, even though we don't know yet who her, her opponent would be, there would be clearly a difference between the two parties, as you say. But within, the, the, she hasn't got the nomination yet. We, we don't know if anybody credible is going to emerge to challenge her. But um, that may be where there is still some doubt. Is she, is she, is she a, a more left-wing Democrat or a more centrist Democrat? Um, <coughs> Well, she'll be looking at Elizabeth Warren, who fires up the base of the Democratic Party like no other politician, like Obama did at his very best. And she'll be looking to appropriate her policies as much as she can. Uh, she will run to the left in the campaign because the gap to run against her is from the left. And that's where Martin O'Malley and, uh, you know, would have an opportunity of picking up 20 to 25 percent of the primary vote. And I, I think she'll be very aware of that there's no... Nobody of any substance or, or coherence running against her from the right. So she will move left like they all do in the, in the primary process. And then, as, as you say, in the general election, it won't be as perceptible as it will be with the Republican candidate, but she will move to the centre. OK. If you stay with us there now for a moment, I'll, um, I'll bring uh, Paddy Smith in here. Um, uh, Paddy, in contrast to the, the, the uh, Democratic Party situation, there's likely to be a crowded field and on the Republican side. And the latest... Um, entrant uh, um, the latest to seek the 
announced he will be seeking the Republican nomination with the Florida Senator Marco Rubio. He's an interesting candidate and he, he, he's contrasted Hillary in a number of respects. He's young and he's playing a card where he's, he's describing her as yesterday's woman. He's the future. Um, is he a credible contender? Yeah, well, I mean, he, he is um, 43 and uh, he is very much playing the, the age uh, issue as a central uh, uh, thing. I, I think the thing about uh, Rubio is that he, he, he may actually have, have already shot his bolt. Uh, a couple of years ago, his poll ratings in, in the primaries were significantly higher than, than they are now. And in the field that you have uh, against him, um, well, Jeb, Jeb Bush is, is uh, uh, doing really quite well, um, 17% in the, in the, the latest uh, of, of the polls. Uh, and and Rubio is uh, has broad support, but not deep support. And the uh, Republican field is is interestingly divided up by people who represent very strongly particular constituencies, like Ted Cruz, who who's very much very much in favour with the, the Tea Party, or Scott Walker with con- traditional conservatives, Mike Huckabee with with um, evangelicals. All of these people are. Uh, either in or about to be uh, expected to be in in the field. And so Rubio actually will find it difficult to um, expand the vote beyond where he's going at the moment. And, and, and probably the leader in the field is, is, is really Jeb Bush. And um, Jeb Bush, of course, brings us to a question about the sort of dynasty politics that's, sort of, that's possibly emerging in, in, in the US if, you have, if it ends up a Clinton-Bush race. What does that say about... Uh, the state of politics in the US if um, if you take out the Obama years where you really have two families sort of occupying the White House now for quite a long stretch of time It is pretty remarkable and and of course uh, it's a critique that uh, the uh, the two front runners will face both from their own parties as well as uh, from across the field. I mean, Rubio is criticizing the Bush um, insider campaign and Martin O'Malley is cr- criticizing uh, uh, the Clinton uh, assumption that, that, that the Clintons can return to, to the White House. So it, it is a remarkable phenomenon to see these two families uh, monopolizing the, the American politics. And who do you think, if the Republicans are, are I suppose, clever enough to choose the person most likely to um, t- to win, who do you think, uh, do you think Bush is the person with the most electoral appeal? Well, Bush has already got what, what they call the elite support, that is the leadership of, of the, the Republican Party, the people who are most concerned not with the pure purity of a candidate's line, but with the electability of a candidate. And he's already uh, doing very substantial work in, in amassing uh, funds uh, for, for the campaign. And But the the, the campaign is, is very uh, unpredictable. Uh, last time round, there was huge, uh, hugely entertaining uh, crash and burn of various candidates over extraordinary gaffes in the course of the campaign. And it's very much dominated by the the, the hard right. Um, evangelicals constitute something like 60% of, of uh, Republicans, and they will drive the agenda and they will push candidates to, to the right. Rubio already ha- is doing a lot to jettison his immigration bill 
uh, which uh, was was looking for a pathway to citizenship for for immigrants, but is deeply unpopular with with Republican rank and file, and and the primaries will probably push him uh, push him off to the right again. It makes for for, for another entertaining uh, campaign. Mm. This is a feature, isn't it, of U.S. elections, where the candidates on both sides have to. Uh, Niall alluded to it earlier, where Hillary Clinton will have to appeal to the more uh, left-wing constituency. And the same happens on the right. And then when the election comes around, they both move back into the centre. Yes, and, and this was the case with, with uh, Romney last time last time round. Desperate scramble for the centre ground, uh, unsuccessful in his case. And another issue, uh, Paddy, and, and Niall, I'll bring you in on this in a moment. Um, um, again, it comes up at each election, the amount of money that candidates are required to spend um, in order to give themselves a chance of being elected. The figure now being referred to in relation to Hillary Clinton is $2 billion or over that, that that would be required. What do you think, Paddy, first of all, that says about US uh, politics? Um, it raises the bar very, very high, doesn't it, in terms of uh, um, accessibility for people? Well, it's deeply perturbing, and it, it's a function of, the, of an extraordinarily... Uh, controversial and I would say dangerous court ruling um, by the Supreme Court a few years ago called Citizens United, in which basically they lifted the bar on corporate donations and said that they could spend anything uh, they liked and that it was an expression of their freedom of speech, uh, political political donations. And it, it means that uh, increasingly, and perhaps the indeed the, f- the, f- the phenomenon of the Clinton-Bush uh, campaigns is is part of that. Uh, it makes it makes the the realistic chances of anybody else uh, pretty slim. And, and Niall, on that same question to you, is um, is this something that um, is of concern to the American electorate or not? I, I think it is, and it's interesting how it's panned out because when the original court ruling happened, there was a view that corporations would get heavily involved with huge donations, whether from McDonald's or Coca Cola or whatever. That hasn't been the case. It has been private groups forming themselves into basically fundraising corporations for their candidate. And I think what, what you will find with the money, and it, it, you know, Bill Clinton ran in 1992. The entire presidential campaign was $82 million. His wife is talking about raising $2 billion. That's probably quite optimistic. But I, I think they will fight themselves to mutually assure destruction of about a billion dollars each. And uh, there won't be a financial advantage on either side. And I think that's where the Republicans, I think, what Paddy was referring to. The Republican establishment is actually far more cohesive than people think. And they tend to pick their candidates on electability and also on ability to raise money. And if you look back, the candidates of the establishment, whether it was John McCain, it was George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., or Mitt Romney, tends to win the the election and i think that's why as paddy notes that uh that um it, it, this time i i i i think that jeb bush is the overwhelming favorite even though that doesn't appear obvious because the establishment is so firmly behind him and they will raise the money for him and that's why for instance rubio is in a tough situation because he would have been a very attractive candidate but he's from the same state and from the same kind of center right background as Jeb Bush, and I don't think he can overcome the, the Bush legacy money. And uh, now, just to come back to Hillary Clinton's prospects then, um, 19 months to go to the election itself, uh, the primaries are also quite some time away yet. It's a long time to be a clear leader in, 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 in the field in any contest, isn't it? So what do you think, um, is there any anybody or anything that is, is likely to, to 
come and trip her up? Where are the banana skins um, over the next year and a half? Well, I, I think there's, a, there's quite a hostile section of the media, uh, strangely in many ways led by, say, Maureen Dowd and the New York Times, which is very hostile to Hillary. Um, and I, I think she's going to be scrutinized and examined, you know, mercilessly. The other one factor in a practical level, Chris, is, uh, is her health. She did have a health scare episode, quite a serious one, where she fell and damaged her skull and had some uh, surgery done. And, you know, obviously she's 67, she'll be 69 when elected, so that's going to raise its, its head at some point, perhaps. Uh, and also, you know, just the sheer, and I know this from talking to some of the reporters covering her, the, the sheer boredom that every story that's ever been written about Hillary has probably been written twice at this stage. And a new candidate, a Martin O'Malley or somebody like that, who's young and fresh and different, could very well catch a wave. But the difference between, say, O'Malley and Obama is at this stage, Obama, you know, eight years ago would have, or six years ago would have had about 15 to 20% support, uh, the kind of Elizabeth Warren vote. Whereas at this stage, Hillary is just so dominant and has raised so much money. It looks like it's almost impossible to try and get a run up on the inside and, and, and snatch, snatch victory like Obama did. Okay, and now finally, one last question, maybe to be parochial for a moment, actually mention of Martin O'Malley would um, put us in mind of it, but the, the, the Irish-American connection. Hillary Clinton has fostered very strong Irish connections, partly through the work of people like yourself and, and Bill Clinton did before her. Um, should uh, um, will the Irish-American vote... Um, is it is it kind of sort of taken as read that uh, it would be in the interests of Irish Americans to vote for Hillary Clinton, and should, should we all be on team team Hillary? <laughs> well, you know, obviously, um, Irish America has invested a lot in the Clintons over the years, going back to the peace process way back in the early nineties. Uh, but I mean, the the fact is that two of the five key states, Pennsylvania and Ohio, have large Irish Catholic populations. The reason that President Obama picked Joe Biden was because of that Irish Catholic background and he was native of Pennsylvania. So in those states in particular, the Irish-American vote is critical. It's part of the Catholic vote, which is one that Hillary has to really, really win because that's a swing vote now and has swung actually away from Democrats in the last couple of elections. And, uh, you know, the the Catholic vote is probably the most unpredictable vote of all in American elections now. It's the old Ronald Reagan sort of Reagan-Democrat vote. And uh, she's going to have to appeal to it. And, and obviously having Irish-American support, whether it's fundraising or people on the ground, which she certainly will have in, in a state like Ohio, uh, will be helpful to her. OK, now, uh, thank you very much for those insights. No doubt we'll be returning to this topic over the next 18, 19 months. But for now, Niall O'Dowd in New York and Patrick Smith in Dublin. Thank you both very much. You're listening to The Irish Times. I'm joined now by Derek Scally, our staff correspondent in Helsinki who um, has been covering the uh, parliamentary elections there this week for the Irish Times. Derek, um, can you set the scene for us first about the, the, the Finnish election? I, I, possibly not all of our listeners will be familiar with the issues there. What are the main election issues and, and who's in power and, and who's trying to get them out and so on? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting election for one reason. Uh, people probably only know Finland in the last few years as being, alongside Germany, one of the most staunch supporters of um, tough uh, conditions on bailouts to people like Ireland and to Greece. And um, what's interesting about this election now is that the, the Finnish economy has been, um, has been, hasn't been growing in the last three years. And the Finnish economy is in urgent need of some uh, reforms and a, a sort of a, 
uh, an internal adjustment along the lines of what was forced on on Ireland by uh, through the bailout program. And one of the one of the loudest proponents of this is Ollie Wren, who many listeners may remember as the European Economics Commissioner, who was one of the leading lights in the European Commission in Brussels. He's now returned to finish politics, but he was very much pushing this line in Brussels for Ireland and Greece, and now he's back uh, on the domestic scene, hoping to get into uh, the Parliament on Sunday and help his centre party um, push to a similar type of uh, Irish-style austerity for Finland. Now, the centre party is in opposition at the moment, um, and Mr. Wren isn't the leader, but he will be probably a leading light when, if as we all expect, the centre party gets back into government as the largest party and then it will put together sort of a, a two or three party uh, coalition. And uh, so the question really is not uh, whether uh, Finland will adopt austerity measures, but uh, how severe and how front-loaded they will be. So I think for Irish listeners, there's a certain irony in this, that one of the loudest proponents of austerity now has to uh, use the medicine on itself. Um, so that's, I think, the economy really is the, the major issue here in the Finnish election. Okay, and many people might be surprised to hear that because we we tend to associate Finland with um, uh, innovation and economic success and uh, uh, the Nokia telecommunications company comes to mind. What's gone wrong there for the past three years? Well, Nokia is really one of the key issues. As you remember, last year, Microsoft took over Nokia's mobile phone division. It had been struggling for years and, uh, and now Nokia which is a long-standing traditional Finnish uh, conglomerate, but the, the mobile phone network was, was the phone, mobile phone company was its leading line. That's now gone, and that's uh, dropped. Uh, that's quite a, quite a significant uh, a few bi- one billion euro out of the Finnish economy because it's now a U.S. company or a subsidiary of a U.S. company. There's also a secondary effect of Nokia. Many people here say that Nokia, while it did drive on a modernization of the Finnish economy, um, it also led to a loss of competitiveness. That uh, the the Finnish economy was rising and every boat was rising with it. There was quite generous pay deals uh, in the public and private sector, and uh, some of the politicians now are saying that there is a sort of a negative Nokia effect in hindsight, and some of that has to be corrected. In addition, there's uh, two other big factors. I think there's um, uh, the belated the effects of the financial and economic uh, crisis around Europe. Finland uh, was a big exporter of everything from steel products to paper, and it's finding, one, there aren't as many customers around the world as there used to be for its product, and secondly, its, it's products just aren't as competitive as they used to be, whether it's paper pulp. Finland has huge forests. Um, you know, the Chinese are producing paper quite competitively, so uh, they're realizing that they cannot really compete there. So, And then there's, of course, uh, Finland shares a 1,300-kilometer border with Russia, and um, the big Finnish dairy companies, for instance, are no longer able to export any of their cheese or milk to Russia. And while this isn't a, a huge issue for the, re- the whole of the economy, um, some people talk about Russian exports and blocked by sanctions about half of 1% of GDP. For, for, for border regions, this is a big issue. And um, so you've got this, you've got the Nokia effect, the twin Nokia effect, you've got uh, a reduction in competitiveness. And then there's just the, the uncertainty over Russia hanging over Finland. And the current Prime Minister, Alex Stubb, has been leading a coalition there. What, um, um, If you say the Centre Party is offering Australia as a solution, what, have, uh, what formula has he been trying that, that hasn't been working? Is it more of a tax and spend approach? 
Yes, well, Alexander Stubb, who's the Prime Minister at the moment, looks like he's not going to get back in as Prime Minister. There's, uh, there's eight par- parties in the Finnish uh, Parliament, so as you can imagine, all sorts of coalition options. But Mr Stubb is hoping to get back in and would be quite happy to carry some of these austerity measures uh, with the Centre Party, with Oli Ren and his colleagues. Um, in government in the last uh, four years, people have talked about a lost, a lost four years because they had sort of a centre, left, right, all kind of colours coalition. And in the last couple of uh, years, Mr. Stubbs' uh, centre right party wasn't able to agree anything with the Social Democrats who were in there as well. So we've sort of seen a standstill. So uh, on Sunday, it'll be interesting um, whether sort of a centre left or a centre right government emerges. But at this stage, everyone agrees that the situation is so severe here. Uh, debt is reaching, uh, national debt is reaching 60% of GDP, which is uh, an alarm bell sets, set, sets off an alarm bell in Brussels. So everyone here seems to agree that something drastic needs to be done. It's just a matter of waiting the um, austerity measures with similar measures and which comes first and front-loading. So very similar debates that we're having elsewhere in Europe and of course uh, all too familiar to Irish ears. Now Finland, it's not uh, unusual in that um, it, it has its uh, populist party and um, we've seen a number of EU countries and um, the European elections and before that maybe a marked feature of those elections was the, the rise of populist parties on the right and left. Finland had its true Finns, now known as uh, the Finns um, I think. Um, how were they faring in the, in the election? They took 39 seats in, in 2011. Yes, in 2011 they really were the, the big winners. They came from nowhere um, to take about 15%. They were the third largest party in Parliament. And this shocked everyone and most political scientists said this is uh, part of a wider European trend where a populist um, anti-immigration, Euro-critical, bailout-opposed party uh, taking uh, a sizable chunk of the of the Finnish electorate. Uh, this time around, people have been writing them off, saying their their moment has passed. But I, I wouldn't be so sure. I spoke to Mr. Soini, the Timo Soini, the rather bearish, um, very likable uh, kind of guy. But his party has some serious. Uh, and racist in the party and some seriously problematic tones and he's promised to take his party into government he's determined to get into government this time and he could still finish in third or fourth position so he's definitely in with a shot the question is whether he would change government and make it a slightly tougher talking on immigration and tougher talking on towards the EU or whether government would change him and um, a former populist would become a statesman. Uh, people have said he, he's done quite well here as head of the Foreign Policy Committee so he's proven that he, he is a house trained and some of his party members are less so. But um, he could be in government by Sunday evening and it will be very interesting to watch. But I think uh, writing him off is uh, probably too soon. On the other hand, um, it could be he could uh, bring his party into line and we wouldn't see the extremism that we've seen uh, elsewhere in Europe when uh, populist parties get into power. And have we had any indication from the Centre Party, which you say is likely to lead the coalition after the election? Are they prepared to do business with the Finns? No, uh, Mr. Yohosipala, who's the head of the uh, Centre Party, he really has all options, and that's, people have said that's why he said absolutely nothing in the election campaign. Everyone wants to get onto his dance card, so uh, he has his choice of uh, literally seven other parties all dying to, to dance with him. So we have absolutely no indication at this stage where he'd go in. At the moment, um, 
it could go either way. So we will literally have to wait until uh, Sunday evening. Uh, he's definitely clearly ahead in the polls, almost a 10-point lead on the other parties. So it could be a centrist, a centre-left, centre-right. This is why it's called a centre party. It can go either way. It tends to be um, have a liberal slant, but it uh, has taken votes from outside of uh, outside of the big capital. It's not a big city party. So it also uh, has a heart for, for people who live in uh, regional areas. So it, it could go with the Social Democrats. It could go with uh, Mr. Stubbs, uh, Conservative Liberals. We'll just have to see. But um, there is a possibility. Some people have said to me that Finland could become slightly less um, Euro, uh, Euro-centric and slightly less Euro-enthusiastic. Uh, we've seen the, the problem with uh, bailouts with Greece. They're extremely unpopular here. Almost every party here hates them. They, most parties would grit their teeth and get through with them. But it could, we could see on, on Sunday evening that um, although the Greek bailouts and Greece hasn't played as big a role as last time around, there's really no enthusiasm for us here. But uh, perhaps uh, having some economic problems of their own at home might, them, might make uh, some Finns and Finnish politicians a little bit more patient towards other countries with economic problems. Um, great. And Derek, just fi- finally, um, you mentioned in passing there um, the, the, the Russia factor in this election. You're just back in Helsinki from a town close to the Russian border. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it. I'll leave that to you. Um, but maybe can you explain to us the extent to which um, um, there is concern in Finland about the more aggressive stance adopted in the recent past by, by Russia towards its EU neighbours? Yes, indeed. Uh, just yesterday, I visited a town called Lampedranta, and that's uh, it's about 200 kilometres from Helsinki, uh, the capital, and it's also 200 kilometres to St. Petersburg. So it's literally in the middle of this uh, EU-Russia standoff. And for many of us, the EU sanctions uh, against Russia and Russia's sanctions against the EU, it's just uh, the, the stuff of, of the business pages and global policy reports. But for this town, it's crucial because um, literally tens of thousands of Russians come over the border every day to buy everything from caviar to vodka uh, to cheese to fur coats. And uh, we've had several uh, knocks in the last couple of years. We've had the, the, the oil price uh, has been dropping. The ruble collapsed last year against the euro. And, um, of course, the sanctions and the, the whole political standoff. So this town has really been struggling, uh, so dependent on the Russian trade. And it's slightly worried that if this, if this uh, uncertainty continues, that uh, many jobs in the town would be uh, in danger. The interesting thing is, though, like a lot of border towns with, with, with a big neighbor, they're quite pragmatic about the Russians themselves. They say, well, there isn't a business, there isn't a business-to-business problem. It's just the politicians. And we have a long history of dealing with Russia. It can be a lot, it can be difficult understand them but uh, there have been regular crises in the past we just hope this one will be over sooner rather than later okay well voters go to the polls on sunday we'll be watching the outcome with interest derek scally in helsinki thank you that's it from this week's edition of worldview from producer declan conlon sound engineer gary white and me chris dooley thanks for listening goodbye 